Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hey, this is Kion Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kion and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788 or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show. Joining us now is somebody who's been a guest on the show for our entire 10 years. I mean, like, not every day or anything like that, but it does give us a sense of legitimacy that Dahlia Lithwick, the elite uh, Supreme Court reporter and uh, podcaster for Slate, uh, is with us and has been with us. And she hosts the legal podcast Amicus, where you can learn even more about what we're going to talk about. It's the first Monday in October. And you know what that means. It's a Jill Clayburgh movie. Um, but it's also because it's the uh, beginning of the Supreme Court. So last yesterday, uh, Dahlia, I assume you attended the Red Mass. Uh, always. Never miss it. Yeah. You, should, you should explain. You know, this is such a bizarre David Lynch kind of weird thing. This is like this thing they they specifically have in a Catholic church with a bishop presiding right before the Supreme Court starts, and it is not uncommon. Three current justices and one previous justice, plus the ubiquitous William Barr, were all at this thing yesterday? That's weird. Colin, I've stopped covering it because <laughs> it's so weird and because nobody finds it outrageous that <laughs> the day before the term begins, you go to a Catholic mass where a religious leader will inveigh against, you know, the evils of abortion or will talk about cases that are on the docket and the justices are in attendance, and this goes back forever and ever. I guess I should add that Justice Breyer, who is Jewish, mm -hmm. has uh, been known to attend. He was there yesterday. Justice Ginsburg, who is Jewish, uh, went and then was offended uh, at one of the abortion screeds and no longer goes. But the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is itself, you know, members are attending this red mass year after year and nobody comments uh, is its own insanity. I, I can't say better than that. <laughs> All right. So uh, the, the term begins uh, today. They have a pretty storied workload here, a workload, Dahlia, that would be alleviated considerably if Kansas were to be eliminated as a state. Uh, <laughs> there are like th at least three courses, uh, cases before the court that involve Kansas. And before we get to some of the marquee ones and also some of the backstories, um, I was astonished being sort of an amateur about all this, I was astonished to find out that A, Kansas does not allow an insanity defense, and B, three other states do not allow the insanity defense. I thought that was less sort of, I don't know, I thought that was sort of plug and go for all states. I thought it was part of standard operating equipment that you have an insanity defense. I actually think the statistic I read is that it's four other states. Ooh. There's five states, including Kansas. Mm. And this is just sort of states that have taken it upon themselves to abolish. And you're completely right. I mean, the insanity 
defense goes way, way, way back. Certainly it's been baked into, you know, American constitutional thinking um, and just theories of, you know, what is uh, just uh, retributive, you know, how we we punish. Uh, And we've had, and the insanity defense goes way, way back, uh, but five states have taken it upon themselves to abolish it uh, altogether and to say, we as a state just don't want it anymore. And and the case that the court is hearing today on Monday, uh, as you note, uh, coming out of Kansas, really is, I think, an effort to say, and I should note, this is a death penalty case where I think it's fairly clear that the person um, has severe, severe uh, mental illness. It's just another, I think it's of a piece, Colin, with this larger trend we have in the United States of increasingly pitiless, increasingly um, suspicious uh, justice system that thinks that anybody who invokes any kind of mitigating defense is just faking and lying. And, you know, we saw a lot of cases last year at the U.S. Supreme Court where Justices Alito uh, and Kavanaugh were sort of snarking about, you know, the, the death penalty bar and how corrupt they are. And I think this is of a piece with that, just a sense that we don't want to hear any excuses. Everyone must die. And and this is one of those, I'm afraid. I also feel as though with each succeeding uh, session of the Supreme Court, it's almost as if some mastermind in the sky was saying, how different could we make these 50 states from one another and still have them be part of a functioning republic? You know, I mean, it's just like you see so many divergences of law and maybe it was it was ever thus, but it seems more pronounced. You know, one state allows gay marriage and kind of basically full civil rights to gay people and in another state, maybe not so much. Uh, and and you, it just seems across the board as we look at all this stuff, and, and maybe it's just part of America's growing, growing polarization. It's like, how far could we diverge from any sense of federalism and have like these 50 completely idiosyncratic states? I, I love that as a framing. I actually hadn't thought about it. I, I think one of the things that we're seeing um, particularly in the death penalty context, is, you know, the raw number of executions is on the decline. The number of states that have the death penalty is on the decline. So all these numbers are ticking down, and American support for the death penalty has been ticking down, uh, largely as a function of, you know, all the, the innocent exonerations that we've seen in the last few decades. And so it is expressly weird, right, to have the court waiting in in this context, in the death penalty context, in the abortion context, which we'll get to, and the guns context, waiting in in places where American public opinion is actually not at their back. American public opinion is very dubious about some of these states pressing forward really, really hard with this unbelievably radical vision of justice at exactly the moment that American public opinion really doesn't want guns in every hand, really doesn't want uh, abortion to be a thing of the past, and and really doesn't think we should willy-nilly execute people who may have legitimate mitigating circumstances. So I think it's not just that the blue states are bluer and the red states are redder, but that I think there's some kind of rearguard action happening in some of the red states to affect outcomes that the American public is not all that interested in anymore. You know, and maybe that can lead us to this kind of second major framing device. This is the first full session for the two so-called Trump justices, 
perhaps a mantle that they will wear less and less comfortably as they go through life. But Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are, are, are there. I know from listening to your podcast that there seemed even maybe to be, have been an attempt in the previous session to defer some of the more marquee or divisive headline grabbing red button issues to this term so that after the boisterous uh, and also divisive Kavanaugh hearings, things could settle down a bit. We know that John Roberts likes for things to settle down. 100% true. And I think that the way that was said on the podcast this weekend by Dean Erwin Chemerinsky at UC Berkeley is really helpful. He pointed out that every one of the big, big, big ticket cases, almost everyone, I should say, uh, that is on the calendar for this term was also on the courts. They could have taken any of these last January and they deferred almost all of them. The only big cases, the marquee cases that they took at the end of last term were the gerrymandering case, which they had to take, and the census case that they had to take. Everything else could have been, uh, you know, put on the court's docket for February, March, April. They didn't. Why? Exactly the reason you just identified. They'd just gotten through this bruising Kavanaugh hearing. Public opinion was really roiled and angry, and so they decided to keep their heads down that these are on the docket now isn't so much that the court wants to take them, but they have to take them. Almost every single case that the court is is now hearing, there's either a circuit split, there's some time exigency, uh, or there's some pressure to take it. And so the court, in a really profound way, has boxed itself in. It has to take guns. It has to take abortions. It has to take DACA. It has to take religious freedom. It has to take, you know, one after another issues, any one of which would make this a blockbuster season, all of which makes it, at least in my experience, unparalleled. And they don't have the option to keep their heads down. And the functional result of all that, which is extraordinary, is that in you know April, May, June, before a November election, all these cases are going to come down. Right. That's the thing that we forget, we with our short attention spans, is that uh, these will be heard now. They will come out next in, in the late spring, early summer of next year. And so they will be digested by the huge python of the uh, presidential election cycle. Well, let's make sure we go through a, a few of these. And so uh, I think the first one you just mentioned was abortion rights. This is a Louisiana case. It's about a 2014 law that basically requires uh, uh, abortion providers to uh, have admitting privileges at a local hospital. I don't know if it would completely eliminate abortion in Louisiana. It would come awfully close, right? I think there'd be, at that point, one um, abortion facility left in to serve the entire state of Louisiana. So it would go from the three that are presently open to one, and that means that most of the population would have a very, very difficult time getting, you know, the time and, and the time off to travel and go and get an abortion. So this is the exact same admitting privileges law that Texas passed and that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down in 2016 uh, in the whole women's health case. So nothing has changed, and as you point out, more clinics uh, proportionally would, would stand to be closed if this law goes into effect. So then the only only real question is, can the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which 
blessed this law, even in the wake of Whole Women's Health, tried to distinguish it from the Texas law that was struck down. The only thing that has changed is that Anthony Kennedy, who sided with the court's liberal wing to strike down the Texas law in 2016, now replaced by Brett Kavanaugh. And that is really the only difference right now is whether you have a fifth vote to go ahead and nullify a decision that was made by the court without, you know, if sands or buts in 2016. Is there another potential difference? I mean, I feel like Roberts has turned into the Scarlet Pimpernel. You know, you see him there, you see him here, you see him everywhere. And so he seems to have gone in a slightly different direction, at least in terms of the decision to hear this case. Well, what he did, and this was important, is last November, when the Fifth Circuit issued its decision saying, no, we're fine with the admitting privileges law, it's sufficiently different from the one in Texas, it would have immediately closed uh, the clinics down in the state. The state brought an emergency stay application to the court and said, we need you to like keep these clinics open pending a decision from this court. And you're quite right, Robert's voted with the liberals to stay the mandate and to allow the clinics to stay open. So I think that telegraphed to a lot of folks, hey, maybe Roberts is in play here. Maybe he, you know, by voting to keep uh, the clinics open in the interim, maybe he's interested in keeping the clinics open generally. And I think it's you're quite right to say, I mean, this is, and you and I have done these previews long enough. I used to always say, watch what Kennedy does, watch what Kennedy does. Now it's what would Roberts do? That's the only question. And I think that the issue here is Roberts in last year when the Fifth Circuit is essentially overruled the Supreme Court and said, we have a different justice, so whole woman's health is not law. I think that was a real like smack on the nose for the chief justice. I think his view of uh, the Supreme Court and its own dignity and majesty is such that if somebody's going to overrule whole woman's health, it'll be him mm-hmm. uh, and not a lower appellate court. And I think that largely was the reason that he uh, allowed the the clinics to stay open while this case was pending. Whether that means that he's prepared or not prepared now, as the fully briefed argument comes before the court, uh, whether he's prepared to yet again uh, say, look it, I was in the minority on whole women's health. I am profoundly opposed to abortion, but We don't go around um, overruling cases a few years later just because the composition of the court changed or whether he's just going to say, cool, I've been wanting Roe to be over for a very long time and now it is. That that is the question. Um, There are, I think, three cases that involve sexual orientation or sexual identity in the context of employment. Uh, These all refer uh, back to Title VII. Um, So two of them, I believe, involve uh, gay men or the estate of a gay man in one case, uh, and the other one involves uh, a a transgendered person. So tell us, uh, what's at stake here, or what what are the stakes in, in these cases? I I think these are the single most important uh, LGBTQ rights cases that the court uh, will hear in decades. And I include the marriage equality cases in that bucket just because this, as you say, uh, goes to employment and goes to whether employers are going to be able and free to discriminate uh, uh, on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status. And in effect, the question is, uh, you're quite right, the first two are consolidated cases uh, where uh, employees were fired 
for being gay and, and, and for playing a, and for playing gay softball too. One of them, yeah. The only thing he did was uh, participated in a gay softball league. Uh, the other was a skydiving instructor. Since deceased, his estate uh, is still litigating the case, but both were fired simply for being gay. And the third case involves uh, a transgender woman who worked at a funeral home in Michigan who for years went to work uh, as a man and then said to her employer, I now uh, present as a woman, I'm going to come to work uh, and wear the designated outfit for women, and who was fired because of that by an employer who, by the way, cited uh, religious objections, although that's not in the case. And the legal question, the doctor final question is whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination, quote, because of sex, sweeps in discrimination against uh, gay and trans uh, employees. And the government is saying, and the employers uh, here are supported by the Trump administration, and they're essentially saying that sex has nothing to do with either your uh, decision uh, to be gay or to be transgender. And so they're essentially trying to read out the words because of sex from Title VII. It's a really interesting case column, largely because nobody disputes that in 1964, when Title VII was passed, the, the, the drafters and those who voted on it didn't anticipate that it would include LGBTQ discrimination, but it has been read to do that. And every court um, in this case has sided with the workers. It puts the employers and the Trump administration in the funny position of having to say, oh, it doesn't matter uh, what the text of the statute says, where it says because of sex, and it doesn't matter uh, how historically it's been interpreted. We just think because of sex shouldn't include gay workers. So it's an incredibly strange inversion of what conservative legal thinkers have used to interpret statutes all along. And it also, I think, raises, and this is just so important, we forget how many states have no protection for gay workers. So if the federal protections of Title VII are taken away. They really are looking at states where there will be absolutely no recourse to the courts for people who were fired for being gay or for being trans. And that will inflect on not just hiring and firing, but on housing, on fair housing, on other forms of discrimination. So I think this is kind of a shot right at the heart of Title VII. And uh, this case is going to be argued uh, tomorrow, three consolidated cases, so we will know more then. But I think it really does leave gay workers and trans workers absolutely, utterly vulnerable to uh, employment discrimination if the court decides to kind of do away with Title VII protections for them. Right. I mean, to that point of, you know, we forget uh, how little protection there is. I mean, one of these cases, Bostock, that's the that's the gay softball league uh, case, that person was a civil employee. It was a government employee. I mean, it wasn't, he wasn't working for some Christian bakery somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, n- not a lot of employment. Uh, we're talking to Dahlia, Dahlia Lithwick of from Slate, we won't cover everything, which means you should listen to our podcast, uh, Amicus. So, yeah, let's go through, uh, get a couple more um, DACA. Um, this, the lower courts have ba- blocked the Trump administration's efforts to uh, to abolish that law and uh, that program and anything else that Barack Obama ever did. <laughs> I think Trump is trying to abolish almonds because uh, Obama used to eat them. So, so tell us what's happening here. 
This is another one of those blockbuster cases. There are 800,000 dreamers estimated who will be affected uh, by this decision. The DACA program was the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It was a program that Barack Obama created in 2012 that deprioritized immigrants and children of immigrants that fit into this dreamer class for deportation. It essentially said, look, we're going to deport, you know, criminals and we're going to deport other classes of people before we deport this class of dreamers. Um, And you're quite right. uh, Donald Trump rescinded it initially, I think, by way of a tweet, which we're also getting used to. The DHS had to scramble to construct some kind of reason for it. Three different courts have now uh, enjoined this decision to just end DACA like that. And uh, the consolidated cases come up to the court in November. I think that the fight, to the extent that there is a fight, is that under the Administrative Procedures Act, the government cannot, they they have vast, vast, vast uh, authority to take dramatic decisions, but it can't be arbitrary and capricious. You can't just say, eh, I hate DACA, sucks, so I hate almonds, no more almonds. Mm -hmm. There has to be some kind of reasoning, some kind of logic for it. And this is a case where, very much like the census case, the initial logic really just appeared to be Donald Trump saying, I hate DACA and I hate dreamers. Since then, they've constructed something that doesn't look arbitrary and capricious as a rationale for doing away with it. Um, So it really will, I think, again, turn on John Roberts' willingness to kind of squint his eyes a little and say, oh, it was okay for Trump to end the program. There are good reasons. Or, as he did in the census case last term, say, boy, this just, you know, it it, it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it's a duck. And this was not done for any legitimate purpose. So, again, I think I think that if the court decides to bless the rescission of DACA, it's going to tell you an awful lot about the court's willingness to bless other kind of very, very impetuous, ill-thought-out Trump uh, actions. And there may, in fact, be five votes at the court. We saw this during the travel ban, willing to do that. All right. That gets us into uh, the finale here. I'm going to skip over the Second Amendment case out of New York, partly because there are some questions about even the fact that the law was withdrawn and stuff. But anyway, there's a couple of other sort of behind-the-scenes things. We talked about other justices. I assume attention is going to be on Ruth Bader Ginsburg with her fourth uh, occurrence of cancer. She's pronounced herself on the way back to hailness and hardiness. Obviously, you know, there's just so many questions about how, whether she can hang in there long enough to, to have a Democratic president replace her. I mean, she's 86. You're quite right. She, you know, missed two weeks last term when there were nodes found on her lungs and part of her lung was removed. And then this fall again, the court released information that she had yet another treatment over the summer. Uh, You know, she's in some sense the Energizer Bunny, right? She's back on this punishing, punishing speaking tour. I I get tired just thinking about living at the pace that she does. But she's 86. This is her fourth cancer scare. And it would be insane not to uh, seriously, seriously watch her every move. I will say that to the extent we thought maybe Mitch McConnell was going to say, well, the Obama rule is in place and we will not fill a seat in the last year of a presidency. He's made abundantly clear that that is not operative for him and that if, in fact, uh, she had to step down in the 11, 12 months 
that we have left before the 2020 presidential election, he would immediately uh, have a hearing to uh, fill her seat. So I think this is not something that is going to get solved in the Senate. I think it is very much something we just have to wait and see how uh, Justice Ginsburg is doing. I think that that is, you're quite right, the thing to watch as this term unspools. She has been in the last couple of weeks crisscrossing the planet doing her speeches and she got a, a standing ovation at the Kennedy Center. So she's she's going to try. But maybe the takeaway here is that the fact that all of constitutional democracy rests in the hands of an 86-year-old, one 86-year-old woman is pretty chilling. Right. People who believe that Mitch McConnell is going to play fair, that is a different kind of dreamer, not covered by DACA. Um, so real quickly, Dahlia, what are the chances that the Supreme Court gets embroiled in a fast-track basis with sticky procedural questions related to uh, impeachment? In other words, the other two branches of government don't agree about <clears throat> how to proceed or what needs to get produced or, or whatever. How likely is it that it goes zooming uh, over to the Supreme Court? Well, I think that, I mean, if you are a formalist, and I am, uh, there is precedent suggesting that the Supreme Court does not involve itself in any questions uh, having to do with the substance of impeachment. And there's sort of longstanding precedent, uh, a case called Nixon versus the United States, not Richard. It was a judge, Walter Nixon, who sought judicial review uh, involving questions around his impeachment as an Article Three judge. And the court said, nope, we want nothing to do with this. Impeachment is fundamentally a political, not a legal question. And so the court have tended to say anything that is a political question surrounding an impeachment, we don't get to the merits of that. And so that is the precedent. It's one of the reasons that when Donald Trump started tweeting, you know, maybe my Supreme Court is going to stop this impeachment ever. No, the courts actually can't do that. Now, you're quite right. I think that there are a whole raft of questions that have to do with subpoenas and have to do with people being found uh, in contempt that are kind of process questions, not substance questions that may make their way to the court. And I think even just today, we're seeing this question of Donald Trump's tax returns. The uh, New York court has already said, nope, Donald Trump's claim, his legal claim, that neither he nor anyone in his family or anyone around him can even be investigated uh, is a bunch of bunk and has demanded that the tax returns be turned over. That's already been appealed up to the Second Circuit. Those kinds of questions, I think, will rocket to the Supreme Court. And I think it dovetails back with your very, very initial point, which is really, I think, the thing to watch. John Roberts has been so scrupulously careful not to be liberal. He's not a liberal, but to not get the muck of this Donald Trump era on him to try very, very hard to cleanse himself from any of the really unseemly conduct that the president has tried to drag the rest of you know the world into. And so I think these are going to be very hard questions. Don't forget, John Roberts will preside yes. over an impeachment trial in the Senate. So John Roberts is in the eye of the storm, whether he likes it or not. So I think part of the question you're asking is at least has to be looked at through this lens of how much of the muck of this does John Roberts institutionalist want to get on himself? And John Roberts is an incredibly canny observer 
of, you know, the political winds and of how uh, the American public is feeling. I think his desire to protect the legitimacy of this court, to protect the esteem and dignity of the court after Donald Trump is gone is going to make him very, very reluctant to do anything that has a sort of lasting stench of Trumpism on him. That doesn't mean this term is not going to be, I think, catastrophic for gay rights, for uh, abortion, for guns, for all the things we've talked about. I don't know that John Roberts wants to go down with this ship, though. All right. So, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, you're so great to find time for us. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate. She hosts their excellent legal podcast, Emma because you should be listening to that anyway. Thanks for doing this, Dahlia. Happy October. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Now, here come some nice people to very briefly ask you to support this show, this station. Do it during our time slot. We get the credit. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 (laughs) seconds, maybe 50 seconds, Mm -hmm. unlike five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. All right. Welcome back. We have more of the show left. Uh, We are going to switch uh, gears and switch fronts here over to the impeachment front. Uh, Over the weekend, there was more news, particularly the news that there appears to be at least one more whistleblower, Uh, a whistleblower also. Well, anyway, this will all be explained by someone who knows far more about it. That would be Ellen Nakashima, as I've mentioned in the past. Uh, Knew her as a young and fresh face at the Hartford Current years ago. All she has done since then is win a Pulitzer Prize and become a vaunted national security reporter for The Washington Post. Uh, She joins us now. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Colin. So, uh, I mean, first of all, in in the new way of such things, uh, as the news broke on Sunday as of another whistleblower, it broke this time in tweets from a law firm. I don't know if that's the only way it broke, but I was seeing tweets from the law firm saying, yeah, yeah, we, we have multiple whistleblower clients. That's right. Well, that's how news breaks these days, right? That's how the president tweets out his uh, foreign policy, and that's how we hear about new whistleblowers coming forward. So do we, first of all, they said multiple whistleblowers, and then they were a little bit coy about it. We know, at minimum anyway, there is a second whistleblower. What else do we know? We know that the second whistleblower is a member of the intelligence community, so is an intelligence officer, but we don't know which agency. Uh, we don't know uh, their their gender. And uh, we know that this new uh, whistleblower or, or witness, really, this is a person who was interviewed by the inspector general uh, earlier on last month, August, I guess it would have been, when the inspector general was reviewing the original complaint and trying to determine its credibility. And in trying to determine credibility, the inspector general spoke to a number of witnesses who had firsthand knowledge of the events that were described in the complaint. And this new witness who's come forward is one of them. 
So, and this might be significant in the sense that one of the knocks that have been directed by uh, Trump defenders against the first whistleblower was that that person's information seemed to be mostly secondhand. I mean, a lot of it seemed to be quickly confirmed by by the notes uh, on the on the phone call in question. But that was a, a way in which there was an attempt to impugn the first whistleblower. Exactly right. And so it is significant that this witness has come forward and their account, which uh, is firsthand, helps corroborate that of the original whistleblower. And we know that there are several others who've spoken to the inspector general who also have firsthand knowledge. So if any more of those come forward, that will, you know, add to the uh, support, the corroboration of the original complaint, uh, help give that original whistleblower cover, inoculate them against these accusations that their complaint was just, uh, you know, politically motivated uh, hearsay. Right. We should say also, just to remind people, that the reason that we keep using this term that you don't typically hear a lot, whistleblower, is that it has a specific security and and legal meaning in the sense that there are ways in which this uh, status immunizes the person from reprisals. Right. Under a federal law, the uh, intelligence community whistleblower protection statute, this uh, person, by coming forward first to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community uh, is now granted protections from reprisals such as being fired or having uh, their clearance pulled or being demoted. It does not protect them from um, say criminal prosecution for, um, let's say, there was some allegation that they leaked classified information. They do not enjoy that type of, of, of protection. But protection against reprisals, yes, they they do. Um, I want to move over to another development in this case, and one that you've covered as well, which is, mm-hmm. you know, this case, as it begins to sprawl in octopoden form, it mm-hmm. seems to involve lots of other people. And within President Trump's cabinet, obviously, William Barr, the attorney general, has emerged as an international man of mystery, visiting mm-hmm. foreign capitals. Mike Pompeo is involved in very obvious and well-documented ways. But another... Um, another name was added to that list, the energy secretary, Rick Perry. Oh. Um, and and so what do we know about this? I am not very uh, deep in the weeds on Rick Perry, unfortunately. So uh, I can't really be a good uh, uh, expert for you on that account. Yeah. But yes, there are many. Uh, <laughs> this this uh, new controversy or scandal has is spread its tentacles far and wide. Uh, not to, and and it's not just Rick Perry or uh, or Pompeo or Giuliani, but there are others uh, who are who are also you know implicated potentially, and and there are other inf- uh, officials who we're we're going to find out try to to push back against some of what they were seeing, and uh, you know weren't always successful in that. So there's much more to learn in this investigation. Well, Ellen Nakashima, we welcome uh, further reporting from you. Uh, I know you have a busy day, so I'm going to let you go, and we'll go to break right now. But, Ellen, thanks for joining us today. 
It's always a pleasure, Colin. Great oh. talking to you. Okay. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. I wanted to leave a little bit of time for a phone call. So, I know, so this is a really short break. It's not a fundraising break or anything like that. Really short break. Um, and if you wanted to uh, call in and talk about any of the stuff that you've heard today, there's one other story that I do want to mention, too, on the other side of the break. Uh, and it's because it's, it's not related to any of this other stuff that we've talked about, but uh, in a way, in an odd way, it is. And this has been a very strange day in addition to everything else. Um, President Trump. Trump uh, is not only pursuing a policy of withdrawing forces from northern Syria, uh, where they would uh, be exposing the Kurds up there, our our usual allies, uh, to possible invasions from Turkey, but he has now today issued a series of bizarre tweets, as usual, accompanied by sort of grandiose characterizations of himself, but also suggesting that he would destroy, he could completely destroy the economy of Turkey uh, if um, if they got out of line. Um, and, and sometimes with President Trump's tweets, we gravitate towards the exaggerated and pompous language, and we miss what he's saying. What he's saying is really strange, too, that notion that he has the ca- capacity to destroy Turkey's economy and that that would be a way of reining them in if they become aggressive and imperialistic uh, in northern Syria against the, Tur- against the Kurds. Also, <clears throat> the other story I want to mention on the other side of the break uh, is uh, a story uh, involving, of all things, basketball. But the basketball association between the NBA and the China Basketball Association and the government of China, too. I don't know if you've seen this story. It's kind of been buried on the sports pages, and it's a bigger story than that. So, But we'd also welcome your phone calls on the other side. It's 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-WNPR. We're living in crazy times. I'd like to hear what you think of them. All you got to do is ring, ring the back. All right. Welcome back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the, today's episode was produced by Betsy Kaplan, uh, our senior producer, with uh, fine help also from Kion Wolf on the board, making everything sound good. Uh, and the part of Bill Curry was played by James Harden. So, um, uh, this week we have some other interesting stuff, but I want to call your attention in particular to Wednesday when we will be airing the second part of our Jimmy Webb interview. Jimmy Webb, the songwriter uh, who uh, made possible, um, well, everything from Wichita Lineman to By the Time I Get to Phoenix to Up, Up, and Away uh, to, of course, MacArthur Park. Um, we spent quite a bit of time with him, uh, and we had a pretty interesting conversation. So if you heard the first part last Wednesday, you're going to want to hear part two this Wednesday. All right, so um, we do have time. We have a little bit of time here before the pledge break. Uh, the number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-WNPR. Uh, and while I wait to see if anybody does want to call in, I, I have a couple of points that I wanted to make. One of the things that you may have noticed over the weekend, I, for example, was watching a football game, and there were uh, multiple airings of a commercial made on behalf of Donald Trump uh, in which described the current impeachment uh, proceedings as a coup, um, C-O-U-P. Uh, and one of the things that's worth noting here, I mean, look, they can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. If they want to say it's the deep state and people trying to overturn the results of the election and blah, 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 they can say what they want. But I think it's worth noting that the reason that we have in our Constitution 
an impeachment process is so that we are not the kind of country that will have coups, a coup d'etat. Um, in other words, built into the mechanisms. I have my, I have my many problems with the U.S. Constitution. But, uh, you know, I think this one, although it's a little vaguer than I'd like it to be, it's a pretty good mechanism, and it's a way of saying, <clears throat> all right, if for some reason or another the, the performance of the president or other federal officials is completely insufficient and represents a significant breach of trust and a significant departure from what we understand to be the needs and requirements of the job. Here is an orderly way, an orderly way which involves both chambers of Congress, sets a pretty high standard. Here's an orderly way to discipline and possibly remove him or her. Um, You know, I mean, so to call it a coup when... Uh, There's a process spelled out in the Constitution. The process is being followed. Um, Evidence is being required and is going to be given under oath, under penalty of perjury. And then a very significant margin of the Senate, very significant bulk of the Senate, has to agree on removal. You know, it seems to me that's like the opposite of a coup. That's like a country that is determined that it's not ever going to have a coup, that there are better ways to do this. So I get to kind of object to that rhetoric. <clears throat> All right. I want to tell you this quickly, quick thing about the NBA because it's just, you know, there's so many stories. One of the reasons we concentrated so much on the Supreme Court at the beginning of the show is, yeah, we're really fascinated by the unfolding saga uh, of the Ukraine negotiations, which may result in impeachment. Yeah, we think that's really interesting, too. But it could it has a tendency to just white out everything else. Uh, and the stuff happening in the Supreme Court is really important. This thing that's happening with the NBA is kind of interesting, too. So what happened was the general manager of the Houston Rockets, his name is Daryl Morey, put up but on the face of it was a fairly innocuous tweet. Just it was about the Hong Kong freedom movement, the protesters, and was kind of backing their their call for freedom, uh, but not in particularly heated language. The problem is that, A, the NBA has a very big and burgeoning, growing uh, financial relationship with China. Uh, it's uh, as all American sports seem to be becoming more and more internationalized, more and more globalization of sports. Uh, you know, I mean, the Bears and the Raiders played in London yesterday. Um, as our sports begin to be marketed overseas, I mean, basketball has obviously been been marketed very successfully overseas, and this guy because he was the general manager of the Houston Rockets, which I think at one point was the most popular NBA team in terms of merchandise sold. You'd be surprised how much merchandise from the NBA gets sold over there, stuff like that. I think it was, I think it's now the second most poss- popular behind the Golden State Warriors just because they're the most popular everywhere. Um, <clears throat> but um, the Houston Rockets, very popular in China because of Yao Ming, who was a big star for the Houston Rockets and is now actually president of the China Basketball Association. Anyway, immediately China starts moving very quickly to to cut ties and cut financial arrangements with the Houston Rockets. Uh, And both the Houston Rockets and the NBA begin moving pretty quickly to silence or maybe denounce. I mean, there's a real question as to whether Daryl Morey 
who, who, by the way, put up this tweet and then took it down pretty quickly, whether he will be able to keep his job in the face of this firestorm, in which there are all kinds of uh, threats to cut off this rather large tap of money. And then, fascinatingly, if you're ever wondering what could possibly unite the incredibly divided political parties of America, it does seem as though there's just been an incredible surge of response against the NBA and against the Rockets for political cowardice in the face uh, of a, of economic aggression and reprisals from China coming from all points on the political spectrum. I mean, you know, from Ted Cruz to Julian Castro uh, and everybody in between, uh, there is a a major movement to denounce all this. So more to come on this, but watch that story because it's an interesting story. It's one of those stories in which some of our values, which I think still do include the freedom to speak up, to make yourself heard, and the values of some of the countries we do business with, China obviously being chief among them, are in sharp conflict. It'll be interesting to see which values prevail in this story. Thanks for tuning in. Here come the nice people again. They're going to ask you to support this station this and this show, and it's good if you do it while our show's on the air. So I think it's Harriet and Ray, but whoever it is, they're nice people, and you should listen to them. 